1: everyone and thank you for listening to the Futurity Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. Flow is a well-known and valuable psychological state in which time seems to drop away and you become completely immersed in the present moment. Though its usefulness in achieving individual excellence has been studied extensively, much less attention has been paid to how it can aid in cooperation. Well, tonight we're joined by a guest who has tried to fill that gap by writing The Devil's Dictionary, a fascinating novel which also explores topics around climate change, mass extinction, and the future of humanity. Stephen Kotler is one of the world's foremost experts on human peak performance and the New York Times bestselling author of The Art of the Impossible and The Rise of Superman. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, FuturatiPodcast.com. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: It is good to be with
1: you both. Now, you are highly regarded as a nonfiction writer who explores topics around flow and human performance, but you're also a successful fiction writer. What is it about fiction, if anything, which lets you get a new angle on important issues?
0: Good question. Uh, and uh, it's funny. I'm trained as a fiction writer. I'm actually, I'm, am I'm, I'm a poet undergraduate uh english major with a creative writing emphasis on poetry of all things right so i'm trained as a poet originally wow and i by the time i got to grad school i had sort of transitioned my senior thesis became the rough my senior thesis was supposed to be an epic poem and it became the rough draft of what became my first novel so ultimately you know that transition was made and um i uh i wrote a couple other novels that are sitting in drawers after that one and then transitioned almost strictly into nonfiction. But I started to there are enormous advantages to nonfiction and I like it a great deal. And my whole, you know, background as a journalist sort of honed those instincts also. But there are hard I, I, I should
2: poems. ask you, um, the poems that you wrote, were they fiction or nonfiction poems? Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they were and they weren't like not, so they, they actually tell story, I'm a shitty poet. <laughs> or I was, you know, like I was never, uh, I, I got, I, I managed to, you know, I could fool my, a lot of professors and a lot of people by doing weird shit and weird shit gets you labeled as, oh, smart, he's doing edgy, cool stuff. I don't quite understand it, but really truthfully, I don't think I knew what the hell I was doing. But uh, um, as, as you guys probably are well aware, um, there's just stuff you can do in fiction, harder ide- ideas that you cannot convey easily in nonfiction, meaning like if I were to try to present some of the ideas in my current book, for example, The Devil's Dictionary, in, as a nonfiction argument, it's 200 pages to do what I can do in three paragraphs in fiction. And it's because of the weight of metaphorical language and spoken language and things like that to convey meaning. And ultimately, I'm trained fiction-wise as a as a metafiction writer and then as a sort of new journalist. And both are those both of those are genres that are built around trying to communicate really hard, complicated, difficult to put into words. We don't quite have language ideas. So I think the challenge is the same. I think there's stuff you can do in fiction that you can't do in nonfiction. And to boot, I always say this from a peak performance perspective, right? Where my expertise is. Um, Reading and reading books is really important for peak performance. You have to learn – continuous lifelong learning is really important. And I always try to tell people nonfiction is great if you want to learn facts. But if you really want your head kicked sideways and you want perspective and empathy and wisdom, that comes through fiction. When you go live in a different universe, a different world, somebody else's shoes for 300 pages – you learn a lot that is really also very difficult how many how many books on indian culture would you need to read to get the experience of reading something like shantaram um which is a popular you know that sort of thing um novels can convey a great deal faster um and poke at harder to talk about topics right there I've, I've got horrific ideas in the devil's dictionary in the but they all come out of the supervillain villain's mouth, right? If right. I present those in a nonfiction book and talk about those ideas, I create really big problems, riffs, lots of noise, and I have to footnote for forty years to just make su- some statements. But and I can and them- somebody
2: will show up at your door and try to throw you in jail for that. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so, my, right. So my point is, like, you can create characters, and they can have points of view that I don't agree with. Or scare me, and I want to investigate all that stuff. You can't really do easily in nonfiction, um, or I haven't found a way to do it easily in the nonfiction that I write. Is probably the better way to phrase that.
2: So, so a typical day for you. I mean, you talk a lot about flow, and you're doing these nonfiction books. So, are you simultaneously writing a nonfiction book at the same time you're writing a fiction book? And doesn't that require like switching? mindsets entirely to shift gears like that?
0: I have done that twice for a couple months each time, I think. And I find it massively unpleasant. I'm a serial monogamist. I like one big book project (laughs) at a time, but I usually I will work on a big book project uh, and research, be researching my next book at the same time. That's always true. Um, and you know sometimes the inverse takes place so we're reading we're we're talking about devil's dictionary the, my, my most recent book it was a follow-up a companion novel if you will to the last hang on cyberspace that book and both these books came out of peter came to me and said hey i think it's time to write another book we're going to call it the future is faster than you think right it was that book and we started talking about what it means for 14 different lines of exponentially accelerating technology to appear in the world at the same time, and how you could think about that over the next 10 to 15 years. And I realized there was no way I could write faster because I couldn't hold it in my head, right? And we were especially in faster because we wanted to do these futuristic scenes that we normally don't do. I always say I'm not a futurist. You guys are futurists. Other people are futurists. That's a job. That's a specialty. I try to deal in the facts in the present tense, and you know, I'm willing to stretch out into the future and make certain predictions, but I'm very cautious about it because I don't. That's not where I put my focus. So I had to switch and learn sort of your job in a sense to do faster in a deeper way than I've had to prior. And as a result, um, I had to switch from a, you know being a journalist and a reporter who thinks about technology in that way. Um, or somebody who runs you know, companies that use technology to solve climate problems and things like that, to somebody who was making predictions about the future. I couldn't do it, so I created a world, which is the world in Last Tango, Cyberspace, and Devil's Dictionary, put all those technologies together, spun the, spun the world forward a decade, and put a story in it, and spent a while writing Last Tango and actually wrote the whole thing in between the gap from when Peter and I started researching Faster and when we ended it. And that was the first draft. I held it for a little while. I think Faster came out first um, as we went back into Faster. And then I sold the, the novels because I wanted to do a two novel series. So I, there, there was a slight delay in how I did it.
1: So I think that's an excellent setup for questions about your current book. Could you just tell us a little bit about the universe of The Last Tango in Cyberspace and The Devil's Dictionary and the, the technologies you were looking at,
0: kind of the world, just paint us, paint us a picture. Yeah, so big picture, what was I trying to accomplish first and foremost? Because this is this sets the scene. Um, I, lifelong you know, environmentalist, I've worked on this stuff. I care deeply about this stuff, animal rights, animal welfare, all that stuff. I believe, and I think Peter and I have made this clear in our books. If you can't imagine the future, you cannot create it. Um, it right imagination is 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 one of the ways we turn thoughts into things. It's how we dream up the future. And I, everywhere I turned, there were books about the environmental apocalypse and what is coming that way. And everybody i know myself included is working very damn hard to avert said environmental apocalypse so i wanted to know what does a world look like where we've actually beaten back the two to my opinion the two largest environmental challenges we now face climate change and massive extinction rate species die off right those were the those are the two ones everything else that we're up against sort of cascades underneath those two levers um, And uh, so I want to know, what does a world look like where those problems have been solved? I did not want a utopia, not interesting, right? I wanted a a real world where those problems have been solved. And I was interested in somewhat in the technology. What are the technological advancements it's going to take to solve these problems? I was also interested in what are the changes in us as a species psychologically um, that are required to create that world and a lot of the book, both books are about the Sort of techno psychological drivers of this shift in humanity. Pro- massive problems ensue, right? And obviously, all of these books are cyberpunk thrillers. So you've got like menacing shadow corporations, and you know all your William Gibson, you know standard Blade Runner, you know stuff. Right. That all all that, all that is there because that's the world I wanted to sit. So that was the big picture technologically. Now there were certain things I focused on more rather than less also because I could not prognosticate. So crypto is in all the books, but do I actually try to make claims about, are we on a Bitcoin economy or an Ethereum economy or like, no, no way <laughs> i am not tried to pick winners 10, 15 years out of the crypto space, right? That would be insane stuff that is much more visible to me, uh, really plays a big role, like the future of virtual reality, augmented reality, holograms, um, all that stuff. And uh, one of the reasons is not only is it stuff that I've written about extensively and spoken about extensively, sort of the relationship between technology and media and where it's going, um, but uh, I've also worked in the space. I've had startups in that space. And my company, the Flow Research Collective, we have an extensive sort of, we've got a partnership between us, uh, the University of California, San Francisco and jump VR, which is the like most cutting edge VR company in the world right now, looking at the future of VR and learning and flow and peak performance and all that stuff. So I like that stuff I can know and see that really plays a big role um, in, in, in the worlds that I created. A lot of the stuff that I look at um, are like, you know, Everything from kind of brain-computer interfaces to next-generation psychedelics um, is was sort of a lot at the core of of some of the stuff I was looking at. So that stuff is is very deeply in there. Um, and then, of course, you know, your sta- all the technologies Peter and I talk about in abundance and bold and futures faster than you think. So, three D printing and bionics and robotics and um, and so forth. All those technologies are spun forward.
2: So do you, do you, you're inventing new vocabularies as you go here. Um, uh, and do you, so the people that are reading your books, you have an audience for your nonfiction books and an audience for your fiction books. How much of an overlap is there between the two?
1: Um, could, could I just piggyback on that? Because I also wanted to ask how some of your, your nonfiction work and things like flow and peak human performance might interface with this? Because I know you were
0: deliberately trying to set up a productive yeah.
1: cross fertilization of
0: these ideas. All right. So, uh, we'll go to Trent's question second, because it's a much more complicated <laughs> sort of answer. Uh, Thomas, you wanted to know, um, oh my God, I just blanked it. You wanted to know, um,
2: you, you have this new vocabulary you've created and, and you have an audience for your fiction work and oh, an audience yeah, wanted, for your non-fiction.
0: Oh, I my audience. So, I, uh, it is a lot bigger than I expect every time like this is like we, you know, so first of all, uh, through the flow research collective, right. We have a, a very substantial mailing list. We train up, you know, a, a tremendous amount of people in 130 countries and, um, we uh, we we have a very big email list, and so we you know every book launch we put it out, and we usually offer bonuses for members of the collective, and so we have a track we track, and I'm always shocked by uh, I'll give you a weird example, Art of Impossible, which was my you know hit 13 bestseller list and was a huge mega hit all over the place. <laughs> We have done more bulk buys to companies in the collective, companies like the B2B side of our business, the business business side of our business. Companies we're training um, have bought two hundred fifty five hundred thousand copies of Devil's Dictionary, um, which that really surprised me. So it's, it's a lot larger uh, than you think it is. Some of this is also, as you know... Because you know Peter and Singularity University and you know there's a lot of crossover between organizations and Peter's stuff. All of the people who can prize for this world, even a lot of the people we train, are the cutting edge of peak performance. They're also aware of the cutting edge of technology, they're usually entrepreneurial and, and working in and around these spaces. And tons of those people read sci-fi as a way to know what's coming, right? And I would, you know, I don't know what the breakdown is like. Futurist books versus sci-fi to, yeah, among this group of people to like see into the future, but they're all about trying to see into the future, predict what's coming, get there first with businesses or ideas or whatever. Um, and I, you know, like these are the people who I get my sci-fi recommendations from. Like, they're, you got to check this book out, that kind of thing. So I don't know is my ultimate answer, but it's a lot larger than I uh, suspected and. Um, which to me is is sort of fun because my actual hardcore sci fi audience is growing right with each book, um, and there's more, much more awareness of of, of my, me as a sci fi writer in that community, and in the like we read nonfiction community. I'm probably one of the best read novelists, which is odd.
1: Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's stick with that theme a little bit, so. You know, you've said before that you're a big believer in the power of imagination to shape the future and the power of fiction to expand the imagination. Now, we're not exactly breaking new ground here when we point out that science fiction has inspired a lot of science fact. But given that you're both a science fiction writer and you're a science fact writer, I bet you have some interesting thoughts on that relationship.
0: Between sci fi and sci fact. That was my beat for 25 years as a journalist. Those moments in time, sci fi became sci fact. That was. Tomorrowland, for example, which is my book that's literally about that topic, I think is a collection of like 30 different articles about moments in time when that happened. I tried very often as a, as a journalist, this is, you know, good for business trip to be in the room when that happened, um, which is a really strange thing, especially, you know, if you're a history science geek. More than a history geek, when you're in the room when history happens, it's amazing. I was in the room when the world's first bionic eye was turned on. You know things along those lines, and first private spaceship. I was at that first X Prize lawn, You know all those moments when sci-fi became sci-fact. And um, what I think is so interesting about so many of them, so. You asked a flow question earlier, and there's two things I think that's interesting. One, every time I've seen sci-fi turn into sci-fact, flow has played a role, right, in in, in in getting to there. The second thing is, I always noticed this, like the world's first bionic eye. was created by a guy named William DeBell kind of a maverick outcast from traditional science, like started there, but was way too irascible. He was a spare parts man. He built more like artificial ankles and lungs and like blah, 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 and called himself a spare parts man. And the surgery itself was illegal in the United States, so to take place in Portugal, but they did all the testing, which I now, 20 years after the fact, I and mean, has passed away, and I can say all this, I think it was totally illegal. I didn't realize it at the time, Right when I was reporting the story for it was a Wired cover story, but uh, when I was reporting the story for Wired, it would have gone in the story had I figured it out. But now, sort of knowing what I know about zoning laws and medicine and things like that, I'm like, there's no way you could like tune this guy's brain-computer interface implant in the back of a warehouse <laughs> in right, with like one doctor, one who's in a wheelchair because he's got diabetes and has lost a leg, one tech who's like 17 years old, the patient <laughs> Alpha. And me, like, there's no medical support. The patient had a, we, when the implant got turned on, 30 seconds in, he, he saw, he had vision, and then a minute in, he had a grand mal seizure. Three wow. days later, he was driving a car, which was the most amazing thing you've ever seen. But, like, when, and I, like, the tech is screaming, call 911, and the doctor is screaming, no, no, don't, and I don't know what to do, because I've literally got the patient like, I've grabbed him and I'm holding him so he doesn't crash his head because the doctor can't get out of the wheelchair. And the tech is 19 and doesn't know what the hell to do. Anyways, all that aside, my, the point I'm trying to make is the future tends to arrive in, like, dingy, weird back room backwoods. Not the, like, it doesn't show up in the, like, fancy sci-fi labs that you so often see in the movies or on television. It shows up in, like, garages, which is not, you know, not all that peculiar for Silicon Valley and coding and software, but really like some big things came out of garages that would down like bionics, right? Like you would have never expected that. Um, and let me go back, because you asked a really important question and I didn't want to skip over it, which is the relationship between flow and some of the performance stuff and what I'm doing. So um, the major theme in Devil's Dictionary is, a, is empathy for all. And the idea here is if we want to save the planet, we need empathy for all people, of course. But we also need empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems, what biologists often call cross-species empathy. And um, so how do you develop cross-species empathy? Where does it come from? It turns out um, everybody has what is referred to as ecological awareness and or nature relatedness. This is your ability to see perceive and care about the natural world and it's a scale everybody's somewhere on the scale right like hardcore i you know my wife and i run a, a dog sanctuary animal go move into the animal rescue animal welfare world they're all the way at the extreme of one end and you know i often say some of my best friends are trees so that puts parts me at that end right <laughs> on the other end are people who are really like I, in the book I, I create the humans first movement right which is human needs above all others. This is species. This is the way it's existed since the, you know, the Bible put it into play and it's been backed up for thousands and thousands of years. And this is sort of where, you know, and somewhere in between is is most of mankind. So how do you move people to the end of the scale where they're going to start? Like if we want to solve environmental challenges, I always say we have to start caring about forests and oceans and mountains and animals in the way we care about friends and family has to be the same community. And to get there, we need a massive uptick in ecological awareness, nature-relatedness. And there are a handful of ways to get there. And one of the most common is flow. And the reason is, and there's a lot of data on this, um, Flow, exposure to flow over time increases both empathy and ecological awareness. The other way to do this is psychedelics altered states in general that psychedelics will do it. in fact robin cart harris has a brand new paper out he's the uh, guy at imperial college london we've actually done some studies with his lab on flow and psychedelics but he just had a new paper come out where he talks about psychedelic influence on nature relatedness exactly what we're talking about it. it goes way up and one of the things that's really important here is as nature relatedness goes up environmental activism moves in lockstep so it's, it's really tightly correlated that people believe has to do with oxytocin release, but neurobiologically. But anyways, in both of my books, I create a psychedelic, a new psychedelic that massively extends nature relatedness and uh, does it very powerfully. And so a lot of the book is about what happens to society after the introduction of this very powerful sort of nature bonding psychedelic. And um, I just took existing stuff and just pushed it forward, um, uh, probably about 10 years in, in, in psychedelic research in that one, but uh, that's at the heart, that's the relationship, and one of the reasons I find it so interesting and can write about it learnedly, quote-unquote, um, <laughs> is because of the flow research, outright and because you we see this overwhelmingly uh, with flow. Uh, the caveat here, by the way, uh, is Both uh, for this to really happen, you need both either a psychedelic experience or a flow experience that takes place outside. It's not like if you're sitting, you know, doing psychedelics and, you know, in a closed room, you're probably you could nature it could expand depending on where you go psychologically. But it's not. It's usually you're in the outside world with these experiences and thus. Um, So uh, does that answer that question? How'd you?
1: do? Yeah, yeah, did an excellent job. Um, this nature relatedness or em- empathy cross, across species, wh- wh- how does that function and what new behaviors does that give rise
0: to? Like, I guess, what is it you're so, trying to accomplish? Yeah, me? you got you to start by realizing there's a foundation. Should humans co evolve with wolves? This is sort of well known evolutionary theory. Um, right. And we learned a great deal of our pro social behaviors during this co-evolution with wolves. And you have to think about this from a species perspective. When they talk about, so there's a a brilliant woman at Stanford named Joan Rothgarden, who has worked on homosexuality and evolution. And because there was a big, uh, because sort of in the homophobic community, you know, gays are unnatural as it was a thing forever. And she came right. along and wrote a remarkably great book, uh, uh, in the nineties. I can't remember the title. I'm looking over on my shelf to see if I can spot it. Um, was about that the exuberance one. No, it was the four, it's the rainbow of something it's rainbow. in, in the title, gotcha. I, um, you'll find it if you Google it. Uh, but, uh, her argument is that, Hey, in any conflict you want people, who don't have children running to the front lines to fight so the people who do have children can protect the children. And so a homosexuality and a warrior class seems to be the evolutionary push behind that because you cannot, any other explanation for something that is found prevalent in 10 to 20% of the population doesn't make any sense, right? Like you can't be an abnormal, that's a huge number of people that has to be not just normal, but incredibly beneficial. So why? And some of it has to do with nature and nurturing of infants. Some of it has to do with protection of tribe. Same thing with animals. We co evolved with wolves. So people who had a better relationship, who liked animals more than people, were really helpful because wolves, we hunted with them. We were pack hunters. We could bring down bigger game. They were our garbage disposals. They provided sanitation. They provided, they were babysitters for our young. And they provided barking and alarms, right? should uh, strangers get close. These are really profound uh, safety and security stuff, so they drive behavior and they drive evolution. So once we started cohabitating with wolves, people who were friendlier with animals, first before then, they were probably better hunters. right? Once we started cohabitating with wolves, that was a big push, which is why a lot of our social pro-social skills were adopted. That's why there was a big driver there. So that's what you're talking about, just pushed forward and this you know i'm talking about what does it mean to treat plants and animals as if they had the same rights as humans that's really what i'm talking about and you can make all kinds of great arguments here i'll give you a simple one that that i use in dog rescue all the time um we euthanize in america roughly 8 million dogs a year and the numbers go from like 2 million to 20 million, depend on who you trust, 8 million is the number I sorted, semi-trust, but um, that's a huge number of animals. But what most people don't realize is dogs have all of the same basic human emotions as we do seven basic human emotions, mammalian emotions. They also have all the social emotions that we do. And in fact, they're better at many of the social emotions than humans are. So they're more acutely developed in animals. Average dog vocabulary is between about a, 60 and 400 words. That puts them between a three and a four-year-old, basically, childhood of to four, depending on where. Um, problem solving, and intelligence, and creativity, and all that stuff comes in between like one and two-year-olds, depending on the dog. So essentially, when we are euthanizing eight million dogs a year. By any sort of metric you're going to use—consciousness, pain tolerance, emotion, intelligence—like whatever you want—you're killing eight million three-year-old kids. That's what's happening. By any thats I mean, it's, if, if we were doing that to children, it would be a global outcry like you've never seen. And yet we're doing it to dogs and there's no, there's no difference. You can't really draw the line. Um, and it's probably worse on the dog side because we're breeding the dogs. We're creating the problem. So, uh, we're creating the problem and we're creating the suffering and that it doesn't, you don't, you know, I use dogs. Those numbers go way up if you want to move into monkeys and chimps and, you know, some of the primates and, you know, uh, they're not, they go down in mice, but not that much farther, right? You can find, and the, it, going into like insect cognition and plant cognition, the evidence is really like it's piling up um, for things like consciousness and emotion and pain sensitivity. And like I don't know what we do there in terms of morality, right? I, I poked up several of the ideas in my books because these are hard. Like, what do we do if we discover plants are conscious, Right. Like literally like what happens to to, to what do we eat? You can't eat plants anymore and you can't eat right, uh, meat. Like weird things like that start happening. And those are the, you know, I think those are the ideas, by the way, Thomas, you asked earlier, like why fiction, those kinds of questions. Right. Cause I always say that like, if you're the environmental movement, one of the things that frustrates me, that, because we have solutions to most of the problems we're facing, but the problems that are coming, that are 10 years away around things like, what do we do when we discover plants are fully conscious or animal, like, and really, you know, we're using AI right now to do all kinds of animal communication. And one of the first uh, crazy studies was done at uh, Northern Arizona University, where they took an AI and used it to listen to and respond back to prairie dog calls. And... They use the AI to analyze prairie dog language along the way. And they, you know, until this happened, people thought, for example, that um, animals lived in a perpetual present. Like everybody used to say, well, animals are always in flow. They're always in the now, in the moment. And um, what we learned with prairie dogs is that's not true at all. When you analyze their language, they speak in the past tense. They speak in the future tense. They speak in the conditional tense. A typical prairie dog sentence that was translated is don't go down that left path the right one is okay but there's a fat dude in a purple shirt on the left path like literally like or coming up the path, he'll be here in 10 minutes or something like that like there was past tests there was future There were like they couldn't believe what was coming up in the research they're doing the same thing with dolphin research and whale research and you know they're weird things like animals process uh, information on different timescales than humans do and these questions are being answered and the, by the way the same question is going to be asked at the upper end of this chain AI robotics right like we can talk about animal consciousness and tree consciousness the same discussion the same criteria the same discussion points are going to be there with AI and robotics and cyborgs and you know all that stuff that is coming very very quickly so these are the discussions that are super interesting these are discussions that are complicated and lugubrious to have in non-fiction and you end up sounding super pretentious trying to do it i think um i can't at least not sound super pretentious when i try to do it um and you can talk about them in really cool ways in fiction
1: this has been yeah. a very pretentious uh <laughs> screen yes, just, hey, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah to follow along with uh some of your thinking uh, I've done a lot of research into the lab-grown meat technology that's coming out. And um, and everybody thinks that that's kind of the, the evolution of rather than growing cows to slaughter and yeah, sheep to slaughter, sure. that we'll just be growing it all in the laboratory. But when you actually... And, and I've been speculating that we're going to start getting into lots of the exotic meats like the penguin meats and the wombat meats and the bumblebee meats, whatever that would be. But um, if you ask the question of, is it morally OK to actually eat human meat, um, then that opens the door for lots of emotional thinking and answers. Would you would you want to comment on that?
0: Wow, Thomas! <laughs> wow,
1: man! Classic Futurati oh. podcast oh. curveball. Oh. <laughs>
0: Dude, what kind of question is that, brother? Um, <laughs> I never even thought about that possibility. Of course, it's right there. Um,
2: yeah. So you have to think about I, it. Yeah, for all I of don't
0: it. like. I don't. I I you. I don't have an answer. I don't even actually. Um, that is hard to think about. I could. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. I don't even know what to say i i you got i next time i'm back on the show ask me again because like this one's not going to be my consciousness for a while so you know two years from now when i'm back you can ask me and maybe i'll have an answer i did i've never thought about that i mean i've been obviously tracking all the cultured beef stuff um and meat stuff exuberantly because i love it and i you know i i think this is it's a future that i can't wait to be here and i also. Now, I got to just flip this back at you because I've been saying this for a while. One of the most shocking things that happened over the past year on the good news category that is very under discussed has been that what will be over a trillion dollars in venture capital put into green energy for the first time in history. And what I think you probably have noticed here. But most people haven't noticed is this is the first wave is green energy. The second wave is the complete reinvention of agriculture, which is you know hot on its heels. And if you look at, like, for example, Chris Saka's the carbon fund, right? Chris Saka, the Twitter guy came out of retirement to fight climate change, created a billion dollar fund, the carbon fund. 40% of his portfolio, 30% of his portfolio is regenerative ag new agriculture, and he's got Every culture. so here's how we know what happens with human meat. You can watch his port, his, his companies because they've got every other kind of cultured beef you could possibly imagine. Companies that are creating it already, like, you know, they're backing. And I'm so I'm looking at stuff like this and I'm saying, wow, what's happening in the, the sort of the reinvention of agriculture has finally started to, I think, tip. Vertical farming, as well as is another growth cat. All that stuff. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing um, or not. And that's sort of my question back at you. But that that's sort of what I, one of the things I've been looking at a lot this year. And obviously, in Devil's Dictionary, I think uh, maybe it's in Last Tango. Oh, maybe it's Last Tango where um, they're eating dinner at like a Four Seasons or some fancy hotel and uh, they're serving cultured beef steaks um, in, in one of the books um, already. And, you know, I know this stuff is already happening in in top tier restaurants, but I, you know, it's, it's in my books as well. But what do you think with the reinvention of agriculture? What are you seeing?
2: Yeah. The, the agriculture is going off in a lot of different directions. And, Up until now, the price of the commodities has not been high enough to really allow a lot of experimentation. Uh, The vertical farming requires uh, lots of infrastructure and facilities uh, to, to accomplish that. And so only... Um, like a lot of the greens and a lot of the lettuces and things like that had enough margin in them to actually make it profitable to to be grown in there. But now with the Ukraine war actually kind of wiping out 30 percent of the, uh, the exported food market, um, the commodity prices are going up. And plus, they've they've in uh, China they've had this disease that's gone through the herds of cows over there that's wiped out tremendous number of cattle, and so um, I've heard people speculate that the reason that they're showing all these pictures of people in quarantine over there is not because uh, they're worried about COVID, is because they they don't have enough food to feed the people, and so. Uh, there's there's lots of interesting things going on that are changing the food dynamic around the world. We've had too much cheap food for too long. And um, and so the, this is changing. And when the price of the commodities go up, that opens the door for lots more research and experimentation than ever in the past. Um, now, going down the path of the genetic research that, that you've been talking about... Um, I've been speculating in that in the not too distant future, uh, a lady that finds herself pregnant will, one of the first stops they will make is at their geneticist and they have, they'll have they have a checklist of like 2,000 different uh, enhancements that they can add to their unborn child. And they can not only select what the hair color and the eye color should be, but in the, the nose length and the ear shape. And Do you read Andrew Hassel's
0: new book yet?
2: No, I haven't read that.
0: Uh, it's it's uh it's great. Uh, yeah. but uh, right on this topic.
2: Yeah, but I've been speculating that this will give rise to super capabilities that will will make people super intelligent, super strong, super capable, and we give rise to this um, uh, this new superhuman culture. And then I speculate on uh, how do you go about super educating the super mind, um, and so that. By the time a kid's nine years old, to be smarter than all the teachers that normally teach that age, so uh, and and then go into how, how do we ramp up the education system to to deal with uh, a whole new level of intelligence, and uh, it opens the doors for lots of interesting questions and creativity. Um, you you have any thoughts on on uh, going down that path?
0: So I got a a handful. Um, that may or may not be useful. The f- the first one is something, actually, I mentioned Andrew Hessel, Uh Andrew said to me very early on, and he said, you know, so people have these Gattaca fears, and I think they're misplaced in that people are endlessly creative and individual, and they're going to want that creativity and individuality in their kids, and thus we're not creating like one master race. We're going to create Millions of master races, right? Because people are going to, we're going to express our creativity in how we modify our children. Was his point. So that's first thought, which I thought was, you know, always wildly interesting. The second thought, and I always like to point this out when people start talking about superhumans and genetics, um, a lot of the traits that you are talking about. Are trade offs from an evolutionary perspective and from a biological hardwiring neurobiological perspective, meaning I can turn up empathy, but something else is going to get turned down as a result. I can turn up creativity, but you know susceptibility to schizophrenia could go up as like the, that's how the the body is very tightly engineered, um, and so I think the I am. Uh, There Now, it depends on when in the future we're talking about, right? Like, there's going to come a certain point when we we can, I think, are going to be able to correct all that stuff too. But I think, like, for a while, uh, nature is going to win and the unintended consequences are going to be everywhere. And this is not going to work as neatly as anybody thinks. And one of the main reasons I say this is, I mean, me, like everybody else, reported on the Human Genome Project and no sooner had the project ended than we found out that whoa that that genome actually wasn't totally complete and really doesn't give us much of the information it turns out there's a there's a proteome and there's a microbiome and there's six right. seven other systems that are as important if not more important than genetics to a lot of stuff and those are we're at the front edge of understanding how those systems interplay. And so I think that puts a break on the on some of the genetic stuff in that way. But I do think, like I talk about in, in some of the books, human-animal hybrids and human-robot hybrids. Cyborgs and human-animal hybrids, are uh, they're here today or coming very, very soon, right? And you've already got people who are have horns or tails there's an entire uh, project to develop cat's eyes for people uh, and you know and basic genetic enhancements i just think it's i i what i think is that the story is not nearly as clear cut as uh it's often represented i haven't read your stuff and and i know you're very thorough so I'm, i'm guessing this does not apply to you um but like that's what i've noticed when i think about this stuff is i think wow people don't tend to know a whole lot about like the evolution of the brain and the trade-offs and how that works and how it still works in biology or things along those lines. So those are the things I sort of think about when I think about augmentation and the fact that like some of this stuff, despite the rumors we've heard about like brain computer interfaces and where certain companies are claiming to be, um, as a guy who works in neuroscience, um, were those are claims to me at this point those are so far from actual reality and what's what we're seeing in labs that um i you know i think the timetable for this whole time horizon is actually farther out than people suspect but so, i could be so totally wrong
2: so as, be, as a thought experiment um, if you had the ability to do this, if you could actually have a, a piece of Elon Musk's DNA that you could download into your unborn child, how many people would pay, well, let's say $100,000 to do that? And if you're not a fan of Elon Musk, you'd just pick any Nobel Prize winner over the last 20 years. Um, having that option, um, is it? Yeah, is but
0: it, I mean, you're having that option with, so first of all, you know. Right, because you know enough about nature and nurture to know that the Elon's DNA isn't going to get you very far, other than it's going to get you a bunch of trade offs. Right, you like that level of hyper intelligence comes uh, often not an Elon per se, but you know, when you get those sort of mathematical linear abilities, and I'm speaking from experience, personal experience, but you also end up on this a little bit on this, a couple of different spectrums along the way. And nobody's entirely certain if you get one without the other. So you better be absolutely certain you can handle, got, you have the right environment to raise said Elon Musk, you know, <laughs> Nobel laureate genes in to produce outcome. Otherwise, you could just end up with like, you know, a hyperactive kid who can't focus or emote very well.
2: Right, right. Yeah, uh, there's, there, there's always a downside to every new thing that we're trying um
0: it, it's interesting when it comes to genetics um because like we know this with unintended consequences with technology we talk about it all the time with right. technology right and somehow when people talk about genetics um now if you're working at the level of like plant genetics right where they're like the stuff that is actually going on where you know i, know, I uh you know you're you're adding one new gene to rice to increase vitamin A kind of thing, or four new genes um, to increase vitamin A. That's sort of a different thing than the entire, like I, I I'm talking off the top of my head right now, but I believe the last time I saw a number, they were like over some ridiculous 150 genes associated with intelligence. And they have no idea which one does what or, you know, anything And maybe is probably much higher now. So like, you know i like that's a that's a big difference from like one gene to like where we're turning off a disease right where right. we we can be very precise with that to we're turning on things which is also the other thing i think there's a there's a gap here between turning off things and turning on things and and in turning on things that's a relatively new field, and it's, you know, has been kind of frowned upon, genetically modified organisms and all, right? Like, it's met a lot of resistance, meaning, like, the science hasn't advanced as far as you might want it to be in terms of, like, turning stuff on in your unborn children. That's all I, I'm thinking about this. Though, Like, I'm not an expert in any of these topics, um, so I'm just a guy with opinions here. You're,
2: you're telling me something could go wrong. Amazing.
0: (laughs) A lot of different Yeah,
1: This might not work how we wanted it to.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Lots more words.
2: Yeah, I I can imagine a few things going wrong along the way. Um, Well, this is, you're you're taking us down lots of interesting paths here. I used to, uh, in my presentations, I used to have this one slide where I'd talk about the things that were never invented by science fiction writers, uh, and it included things like Velcro and foam rubber and things like that on it. <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, um, but so many, uh, so many of the things actually uh, come in a some form in a science fiction context, and they they paved the way for lots of research and thinking on it. Um, that was the, the space elevator project is, is a interesting example of that. Um, yep. and we're, we're still not convinced that that's uh, going to be viable, but, uh, it has led to lots of research anyway. Uh, can you point to some of the things that you've speculated on that has opened up the door for new research to happen?
0: That's interesting. how I opened the door for new research? Um, a lot, um, yeah. So let me let me speak to the thing that that we're like I've written about and we're working on. So I you know can you know, I can speak to it directly. Um, and uh, let me tell you. So in two thousand. 9, 10, 11, 12, can't remember, uh, Adam Ghazali, who's at the University of San Francisco, California, we, who, who uh, the Flow Research Collective is partnered with um, in, in some of our studies, uh, had the cover of Nature because he had invented the first video game that is FDA approved to treat cognitive decline in older adults. And it's the first time in history you can go to the doctor and your doctor will give you a prescription for a video game. Play this game three times a week for two hours a session and literally like that it's sort of when you talk about uh the aging brain there's like six or seven things that slow down um he's found a way his game can reset two of them which is a really big deal two of them to like the age of a 20 25 year old um which is really amazing i in 2015 i it actually was a Singularity university event i was was with a group of SU people, and we were giving a presentation to NBC, I want to say, one of the big television studios, and we were talking about the future of entertainment. I said, you guys have to understand that what my buddy Adam did has, up till now, media and healthcare were totally independent things. They weren't the same thing. Now, they've become the same thing in the future, you're going to get a ton more of this. And so if you're NBC and you're making thinking about what kind of programming you're making for 2035, for example, or 2030, do you want to make a TV show that like I want to watch or do you want to make a TV show that I want to watch that maybe makes me smarter or increases you know, this or that of that kind of thing? And um, we had a long conversation about that. Towards those ends, at the Flow Research Collective currently, I mentioned earlier, that we're partnered with Jump VR um, and, and Adam Ghazali's lab. And one of the reasons is Flow has a significant impact on learning; accelerates so learning massively. Uh, depending on whose numbers you go by, uh, for example, Chris Berka at Advanced Brain Monitoring did a research project with DARPA, and they found that soldiers in Flow will learn 240 to 500 percent faster than normal. There's a bunch of other studies. Uh, that that show similar upticks. So we're working. We know also that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow, and VR is particularly good at getting at them. Video games can get at some of them, but VR is great, because you have access to a whole bunch of different flow triggers than normal. now we're working on uh, with them because we believe that the future of learning and education, and our main goal, which is worker retraining, um, is going to be a virtual, a high flow virtual learning environment. You've got a fully distributed, accelerated learning platform, and we're one sort of like personalized AI away from making that individual training right based on personality, history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that should be here by 2030. So you're looking at like the future of accelerated learning inside of VR for things like worker retraining, which is a really big deal if you're looking at things like robots and AI coming for our jobs. Okay, they're not coming for all our jobs. They're coming from the shitty blue collar jobs first that nobody wants anyways. So the problem isn't do we give up these jobs? The problem is, how do we get people who's, who's this is their livelihood and who so a lot of them love what they do to get reskilled in something we actually need? And how do we do it fairly quickly and egalitarianly, and you know all that stuff? And suddenly we have a fully distributed VR-based accelerated learning platform, and we're working to develop this. So are other people, but that's something that I pay a lot of attention to. That's coming. That I think is really. That's where I start getting interesting. I'm the, the brain-computer interface, that like the stuff that's overhyped. Um, I mean, maybe you know what I mean. Maybe it'll it'll, it'll get there it first. But I think this stuff is real. It's based on science that works today, and um, it's already sort of coming. And it's there's still some science hurdles, but it's more of an engineering challenge than a science challenge right now. Whereas brain-computer interfaces, it's still a science challenge. How's that
2: for an answer? That's, that's that's really good. That that yeah you've uh, uh, you've opened the door for lots of um, interesting thinking there. <laughs> so so as you're moving forward, I mean, how many how many book projects do you have kind of in the mill? I mean, do you you have these lined up, ready to go?
0: So I have a book coming out next January on peak performance agent. I uh. Um And then there are conceptually, I have, um, well, there's two more books in the Lion Zorn series. If I want to write them, I've got um, I've got a one that happens after Devil's Dictionary, one that happens between last Tango and Devil's Dictionary that's alluded to in Devil's Dictionary, but it's not it hasn't taken place yet. Um, I have another novel, that i've been thinking about a lot that is totally bizarre fun but more like john dies in the end if you know that book um okay and, uh, and like a standard sci-fi book i've got uh peter diamandis and myself are, are starting to research um another book on sort of exponential cooperation um and what and sort of what that means uh and i am currently working on um second book on peak performance aging and a book on the neurobiology of intuition. So I don't know how many that is, but I will like probably three, two of those aren't real. And the others are real.
2: Um, So I've, I've been speculating that because of COVID COVID is a big demarcation point. And in the movie industry, television industry, um, all of these, everything we've created up to this point is going to be labeled as pre-COVID and then we're going to have a whole new post-COVID genre, if you will. But uh, I think COVID has actually changed our definitions of success and our motivations and what a hero looks like, what a villain looks like. And it seems like uh, it's opened the door for a new breed of storyteller to kind of pave the way for our thinking moving forward. Um, have Have you given much thought to this uh, post-COVID mindset and how that that ties into the the way you craft your novels?
0: So no. and well, novels or books in general. Yeah. So um, there are certain things that that do seem to be true. Immediately after post-COVID, but I, Thomas, I, like, <laughs> we, we are both old enough to know the things that seem catastrophic, colossal, huge, going to shape everything from here on after. Um, like, just off the top of my head, times I've heard those phrases in my life the hostage, the iran hostage crisis yeah and the salt talks over nuclear weapons are the first two that pop into my brain definitely 911 um, 11 w- was one of those covid was one of those the housing crisis the dot com bust reagan uh, bush too the, and and the that questionable election um, i mean i war in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, I could keep going with these things, where I've had heard lots of people afterwards declare, this is it, it's the breaking point, everything is different from here on after, and um, I, much respect to you, but I doubt the premise. Okay. I don't, I I, I just, it's not that I don't think COVID has totally changed us. in some way or the vietnam war totally changed us in some way or all those things they all change us but i don't like i have heard you i i have to see it in hindsight i got to see it looking backwards um whereas if you point to if you take a technological line here and point to okay we can look at these technologies and say the world is like i think the world fundamentally shifts with the arrival of social media for example and um we don't get to put that genie back in the bottle just like the world shifted with the arrival of the internet and the printing press. so there's certain communication technologies where there's a before and after there's certain weapons fire the crossbow the right gunpowder nuclear weapon, right? There's a before and after. I'm just not sure yet. And when it comes to huge media capturing events that make everybody hysterical, myself included, right? I'm not immune. I I go down the same rabbit holes as everybody else, um, in a sense. Um, I just try to be informed along the way. Uh, I have to see it in hindsight, because I just don't know. And some of this stuff that you would, for example, I'm a big Thomas Pynchon fan, and uh, my brother's reading Pynchon now for the first time, Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time talking to him about Gravity's Rainbow and why this and what this, and Pynchon was the first person to see sort of like what it meant to do research on psychedelics, right? Like that whole line of, you know, psychedelic research that the U.S. government was doing, that the Germans were doing with the Russians, all that stuff. Was a weird conspiracy thing in the 1970s. It became a little realer in the 80s when we started getting books about this as as, as history in a sense. And now it's not just accepted fact. It's law, like there's an entire psychedelic revolution that's changing culture, changing medicine, changing healthcare. And I always think that the future often comes from places like that. The really like obscure weird little thing that you don't see coming because it's just sort of been there at the side for a while and it's not the big thing that everybody can see now this may just be my predilection as a fiction writer novelist you know i like it those are good stories also right Right. so this this may be a bias but that's my two cents but i don't Think it's even worth three cents here, so take it as two cents.
1: (laughs) Well, the thing about predicting the future is that it's a lot easier to do in hindsight. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I told you, I'm not. I'm I'm trained as a, you know, in that I, I I feel like I can sort of speculate on the future peak performance, um, because I've worked on the cutting edge of that so long and have tried to drive it forward. When it gets into like disruptive technology, unless you're in environmental, the environmental space. I'm a reporter much more than a futurist, right? Unless I'm playing of wearing my sci-fi hat. And then I get to be, you know, a futurist without a conscience because I don't have to be right. I just have to be interesting.
2: <laughs> so so you've made a uh, 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 comfortable living um, being an author and writing things down. And with all of the books and everything, have you, have you taken the time to calculate, out how much each one of your words is worth uh so just yeah so by,
0: by the way it's going to come out to be very little and i'll tell you why um, <laughs> so uh whatever the sum is that i've made let's talk about what you have to divide it by so this was about four years ago five years ago a couple of people who uh i work with and on my staff wanted to estimate how many published words i've done and they, they worked the numbers, and, um, and I helped them a little bit. Uh, and they came up to about 5 million published words. Now, you have to remember that for everything I published, I've probably written an equal amount and thrown it away, if not more, right? <laughs> like, you know, the discard pile is often higher than the, right. the keep pile, um, and the edit pile like forget like there's this card i threw it away completely and then there's the like i fucked with it and changed it 400 times to get to the final version my point is like i've probably written somewhere around 14 million 15 million words aimed at publication right so then when you divide whatever it is that i've made by that number you're gonna find out that my hourly is like pennies on the hour i'll give you let me let me put it stuff in context for you my first novel took 11 years oh wow I was a journalist but it took 11 years and over that period of, and i pay i got paid for the angle quickest for flight after 11 years of work after i took 800 pages threw it in the trash i took 500 pages threw it in the trash and then rewrote the final book four more times and i made <laughs> five thousand five hundred dollars wow is <laughs> <That's> not good. <laughs> <laughs> the of, of which, right? The IRS took, took their cut, and I have a belief that like art in art out. So every time I make money on a piece on art, I try to spend some chunk of it on somebody else's art. Art in art out is the way it's supposed to work. And so I think I bought a painting for twenty five hundred dollars for that first of, of that first, out of that first book. So like by the time it was all said and done, like. My pocket change was like $1,500 for 11 years' work. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, fantastic. Stephen. we're coming up on the, the end here. Are there any words you'd like to leave our
0: audience with? I, uh, If you want to know more about me, StephenCotler.com, you want more about the Flow Research, flowresearchcollective.com. Um, that's probably the only more I've got.
2: So where where do people get a copy of your book at?
0: Uh, Devil's Dictionary is available um, everywhere, and you know, uh, go to Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble, if you have to, but support your independent local bookstore if you can.
2: Yeah, and buy five hundred copies at a time.
0: <laughs> 2000. <It's a> <laughs> In fact, I heard a rumor. I can't completely confirm this, but if you buy more than five hundred copies. Your life extension increases by like three point seven two years. <laughs> I don't know what the, like I'm, I'm I'm unsure of the correlation <laughs> right now. Causation is not correlation. <laughs> yeah.
1: well, we love it. Thank you so much for joining us, Steven. Hey, it was a pleasure, guys. Yeah, this time.
2: is great. Thanks, Steven.
1: Hey, my pleasure.